This holiday season, please consider supporting the Cato Institute and specifically the Cato Daily Podcast. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started. If you support Cato with a donation of $1,000 or more, I'll gladly give you a shout out on the podcast, or you can designate another individual to receive that benefit and all the other benefits of being a Cato sponsor. That website again is cato.org slash podcast sponsor. And thank you for your generosity. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, December 28th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Prostitution is legal only in parts of Nevada. But Nevada's prostitution follows what's known as the brothel model. But to get to a world where sex work is no longer criminal, it's worth considering the different models of legal sex work that could be tried. Caitlin Bailey is with Decriminalized Sex Work. We spoke earlier this month in Phoenix. Nevada's the only state in the union with legal regulated prostitution, and it has the highest arrest rate per capita for prostitution, right? So I hope that that is not the model that we end up nationalizing. Now, is part of that that Nevada is also a a hub for vacationers? You know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, that, that it is that it is a a a very different kind of of state, a very different kind of city, particularly Las Vegas. Sure. So Nevada is absolutely a vice state, but there is no legal prostitution in Las Vegas, which I think is part of the problem. Okay. Right. So uh, I but I don't believe that there's more prostitution happening in Nevada than there are in comparatively sized states. I think that it is more aggressively policed because the owners of legal brothels um, have a, a they are invested in cracking down on their illegal competition. And so in in Nevada in particular, mm-hmm. it's the brothel model, which yeah. you and I talked about before we started recording. And that is a model where you have to essentially work for someone. Yes. So legalizing, regulating prostitution forces people into brothels. Now, there are a lot of ways to do that. In Nevada in particular, you're forced to register with the sheriff's office as a uh, and get a license for legal prostitution. Uh, you have to work in, in brothels, which have a series of county uh, and city uh, and the sort of district regulations that create the sort of confusing um, tapestry of laws where, you know, no one who's working there is ever sure if they're violating like a manager's law or like a local sheriff's law or like a state law. Um, And so it really disempowers workers. Um, This is a model that really only benefits brothel owners. And I think it's interesting that our opposition um, to to decriminalizing sex work really likes to frame it as legalization, right, forcing people into brothels versus uh, their, you know, utopian idea of being able to uh, arrest just the clients of John's, which is a model that has worked uh, nowhere for no one. Okay, so... uh, Maybe we should take a step back. Uh, There are four ways to regulate prostitution. There are only four models in the world. There's, There's full criminalization, Right, which is what we have in most of the United States, which is where both buying and selling sexual services uh, is criminalized. Now, in practice, it's mostly the seller that's arrested, but on the books, uh, it's 
equally illegal to buy or to sell sex. Um, there's legalization or regulation. We see this in Amsterdam. We see this in Nevada. Uh, this forces people into brothels. Um, they have to be licensed. There's a, a, a regulatory apparatus that's erected. Uh, there's full decriminalization. That's what we're advocating for, which is where we don't arrest uh, adults for doing adult things with each other, even if there's money exchanged. And then there's something that's being called end demand, uh, or the Nordic model, or the Swedish model, or some rhetoric I've heard recently that makes me uh, that makes me crazy. The equality model, which is the idea that you are only criminalizing the buyers uh, or third parties in a sexual exchange. So um, you know, so Johns or clients. Um, or managers, bookers, security personnel, or in practice, landlords, cleaning ladies, support staff, or anyone socially affiliated with a sex worker. Okay, now who's pushing that model? That is being pushed by uh, what I would call radical feminists, uh, mainstream feminist organizations, the National Organization of Women here in the United States, especially the New York chapter. Uh, there are global organizations. This is the model that Gloria Steinem believes in. So Gloria Steinem wanted to shut down pornography in the 1980s. She lost that war. Uh, and now she is trying to criminalize the purchase of sexual services. Because these are the exploiters? The people, That's the, the framing. Okay. So the, the problem with most sex work legislation is that we're all susceptible to simple stories. We want to divide the world into villains and victims and that's that's not how anything works. Everything is a, a level of magnitude more complicated uh, than we want to believe. But uh, arresting clients um, does not help sex workers. It does not help trafficking victims. And it does not help law enforcement. Um, everywhere that we've seen these policies enacted in Norway, uh, in Sweden, we see sex worker deaths rise. And I think that's the counterintuitive part. And that's sort of our challenge um, as advocates trying to let uh, trying to educate legislators about this. Um, legislators are very susceptible to things that sound like half measures or compromises, right? They want to please all parties all the time. But end demand policies are actually worse than full criminalization because it pushes the industry further underground and it makes sex workers and trafficking victims more uh, more vulnerable to violence. Okay, so uh, among the states that are mm -hmm. moving to, if not fully decriminalize sex work, at least to take steps to reduce the punitive regulation yes. that surrounds uh, uh, sex work, what, what are those states and what, in your view, is the better, uh, are the better steps that are being taken. Sure. I think that there are a lot of ways to do harm reduction that don't trigger uh, decriminalizing sex work or, or pushing constituents past where they're willing to go. Um, I think that looking at expanding vacature is one of the, the best ways to mitigate the harms now, of what criminalization. Is that? What is that? It means vacating a conviction uh, for somebody who is a victim, right? So somebody who found themselves in an exploitative situation, whether they legally qualify as a trafficking victim or, uh, you know, they just had a bad boyfriend, um, wiping their conviction clean, giving them a fresh start, uh, giving them a clean slate is a way of, of mitigating the crimes of criminalization. Kansas actually has some of the best laws on the books uh, that makes it uh, easy for, for victims to clear their records. Um, it, 
we don't want to repeat the legalization model in Nevada. We've already talked about those reasons. We We've seen, I think one of the best laws uh, here in the United States happened on accident. Rhode Island decriminalized indoor prostitution between 2003 and 2009 in kind of a complicated combination of judicial decision and congressional oversight. So what was the, this is an interesting case. We talked about this beforehand. Mm -hmm. What caused courts to move the way they did on prostitution? Coyote which is one of the oldest sex worker rights organizations in the country. And it stands for Call Off Your uh, Old Tired Ethics, uh, which I think is great, right? Uh, so they got started in nineteen the early 1970s. Uh, they came out of uh, WHO, which is an organization that stands for Whores, Housewives, and Others, meaning lesbians, um, in the late 1960s. And they sued the state of Rhode Island for sex discrimination because it was illegal to buy and sell sexual services, but 99% of convictions were focused on the seller, and 95% of the time you're talking about criminalizing a woman when both a man and a woman were involved. So Coyote sues uh, the state of Rhode Island for sex discrimination, and the state court agrees with them, and they task the legislature with fixing this law. But the legislature does what legislators do, which is not much. And so they fail fail to fix this law. Uh, Nobody notices until 2003 when there was a massage parlor raid. and they were uh, they were being charged with prostitution, promoting prostitution, procure, like the whole the whole nine yards. Uh, but they got a lawyer who noticed that there wasn't a criminal statute, um, and they they showed the judge, and the judge agreed with them, issuing a decision in two thousand three, effectively decriminalizing indoor prostitution in the state of Rhode Island, um, and that wasn't recriminalized until two thousand nine. So, what happened in the intervening years? In the intervening years, uh, gonorrhea was reduced by 39%. Reported rapes were reduced by 31%. Um, there was a reduction in trafficking. I mean, like the the results were persuasively positive. But 2009 is uh, a period of time where we, we start talking about human trafficking. There's a lot of media reports, a lot of anxiety around, around prostitution. So legislatures push through the recriminalization of prostitution, but it was actually fought um, by several state representatives, uh, one of whom was Representative Anastasia Williams, who is co-sponsoring our legislation now uh, to push for a study commission on how we can actually reduce human trafficking. I've spoken with Elizabeth Nolan Brown of uh, Reason about this, uh, and we we spoke specifically about the Robert Kraft case, where he goes in and gets a massage and we're not even necessarily totally clear on the on the details there. He probably got some payoff, if you will. It's possible that a legally licensed monsieur massaged a different part of his body. Fair enough. We'll put it that way. <laughs> so, um, you know, the question is, of course, if these women are victims, why are they being charged with felonies? That's a really and, great question. And in the uh, uh, in this case, in particular, he, the immediate thrust from law enforcement was trafficking, trafficking, Mm -hmm. trafficking. There were four different law enforcement agencies that all threw themselves press conferences, lauding themselves as heroes for having rescued sex slaves. And really, they were depending on racist tropes. The fact that these women were Asian does not, in fact, 
necessarily make them victims. And in fact, their own prosecutor was forced to admit in open court that there was no evidence of trafficking in this case. And I would push that many, many cases that law enforcement and the media declare uh, as evidence of trafficking are just um, adults making adult decisions. So uh, if you were to advise a state legislature that wanted to adopt some best practices, mm-hmm. uh, Alice Little, who is a sex worker in uh, Nevada that I spoke with a while back, uh, she seems to think that uh, if a state is going to decriminalize sex work or legalize prostitution, depending on how how you want to characterize it, uh, that local option is probably a key thing as, as a political matter to actually uh, get it through the legislature. What do you mean? L- allowing counties to simply say, well, not here. I mean, it's spoken like a true Nevada sex worker and like not to not to shit on on Nevada, but it, it's it's really not a model that we want to replicate. We don't believe that it empowers workers. We don't believe that this is something that constituents want. We think that it really only benefits uh, brothel owners. Um, I believe that uh, there are all kinds of people who are having all kinds of sex for all kinds of reasons all around us all of the time. And whether adults who are engaged in consensual sex with each other are exchanging money or not, that act shouldn't be criminalized. Now, I can see local ordinances, uh, you know, mitigating street-based prostitution or uh, advertisements in public. I don't see a future where, you know, we have uh, advertisements for brothels on billboards or on your, like, late-night television. The way that they handle this in New Zealand is that the only um, advertisements for sexual services are online. You have to go and, and look for them. But if you are an adult person, engaging in sexual acts with another adult person, unless one of you reports a a harm or a crime happening, there's no criminal activity happening. So what do you uh, you point to uh, New Zealand? What Mm -hmm. what makes their system better than any system that we have in the United States of the two or? It's an example of full decriminalization. So if you are an individual sex worker, you're allowed to work for yourself, by yourself, in your home, uh, at a motel, at a hotel, at somebody else's private residence. You can work with up to uh, three other people before having to register um, as a licensed brothel. And then you're subject to um, all of the other laws that would apply to any other small business owner. Um, But it doesn't criminalize people for having roommates or hiring security or hiring somebody to manage or or book their appointments. I think one of the real harms of the end-demand policies is the socially isolating impact that it has on sex workers. If you are a sex worker uh, operating in, let's say, uh, Sweden, right? So this is an an end-demand Nordic model country, um, and you have a roommate, that person can be charged as a pimp. Right. If you work with another sex worker, either to schedule your appointments, to exchange references, or God forbid, to book a double, you can both be charged with trafficking. Uh, if there's um, there's something in uh, in Sweden, I think it's called Operation Homeless, where one of the one of the major goals of these you know like anti uh, these end demand policies is to make it as difficult as possible to work legally as a prostitute. Um, 
Yeah, yeah it's an it's an interesting thing because mm-hmm. you you uh, as a sex worker, presumably you want to to feel comfortable doing your job. You want to feel safe, mm-hmm. and if you're criminalizing the people who can provide that safety, you're not doing that person. A favor. And this is counterintuitive because I think a lot of people have a, a caricature in their head of the kind of person that purchases sexual services, right? And they, you know, they envision a, a creep or somebody who should be discouraged. And when in fact, uh, the people that buy sexual services are a lot like the people that sell sexual services and that it's all kinds of people, right? But the problem is, is that when you criminalize clients, you disempower. Uh, the provider to be able to effectively screen them, right? So when I was working as an escort in 2004, 2005 in Raleigh, North Carolina, if you wanted to book an appointment with me, I needed your real name, where you worked, and two industry references, right? Those are other women that you've seen that you've presumably not killed or upset in any significant way. And if I could get in touch with one of them and I could verify your uh, your employment and your identity, I then checked your ID at the door. This was only possible because I was the target of police activity. No, no potential client could reasonably tell me that they feared uh, prosecution because clients simply weren't being targeted in 2004, 2005. Now, Uh, Fast forward to today, if I tried to replicate that same screening system, I have somebody who says, I'm not going to give you my real name because I'm providing evidence for a crime. There have been John Stings in this country. I don't, you might be a cop. Now, I can't tell the difference. If between uh, somebody who has a reasonable fear of prosecution or a predator who's posing as a client who's trying to get around my screening process. Now, that's true for me working as, as an escort who's working indoors, scheduling and screening my clients. My friend Cayenne, who is a, a trans sex worker who has done street-based sex work, when, uh, when she was the one that was facing criminalization, she was arrested many times, she would take her time chatting with a client, negotiating boundaries, talking about what was going to happen through the window before taking the major and risky step of getting in their car. Once we start criminalizing clients, even she can't tell the difference between somebody who is scared and someone who's scary. Are there, What state is moving in the right direction? And I know the polling, uh, to look at some of uh, your literature polling, mm-hmm. at least nationally, uh, looks a lot better than it has in many years in yes. terms of support for decriminalizing sex work. But is there a state that has that is offering legislation that is c- a clear step in the right direction? I think the best bill that I've seen is actually the District of Columbia's uh, Safety and Health Act of 2019. And that was co-written with uh, Representative David Grasso, with uh, HIPS, Helping Individual Prostitutes Survive, and local, uh, you know, Decrim Now DC activists. Um, And that law decriminalizes sex work for the public safety and health. It doesn't create a regulatory structure. It simply stops the arrests, knowing that that act alone empowers sex workers to advocate for their own health and safety and to report violent crimes committed against them, which improves the entire community's safety. Uh, that bill, although it received a 14-hour hearing, there is no there is no vote scheduled. The D.C. Council uh, councilmen are are afraid to move forward on that legislation, but we're going to see what we can do. 
Caitlin Bailey is Director of Communications with Decriminalized Sex Work. We spoke this month in Phoenix. You can support the Cato Institute and this podcast with an end-of-year gift. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor. And thank you.